The issue is, if you look at in 2020-21, the COVID years, is that we had negative net migration into Australia, but house prices still went up quite substantially, like 20% or something, something like that, which I think proves that it's not just a demand problem, this is also clearly a supply problem as well. Britain is not alone in facing a housing crisis. From Ireland and the United States through to Canada and New Zealand, house prices have skyrocketed in recent decades. But while younger generations are struggling to buy and facing an immense cost of renting. And this is of course driving immense frustrations politically as well as poor policy making. In Australia, where house prices have jumped 382% in the last 30 years, there's a growing fight back in the name of house building. Welcome back to the IA podcast. My name is Matthew Lash and I'm the IA's Director of Public Policy and Communications. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalizing policy question. Today's question, is Australia defeating the NIMBYs? To discuss, I'm very excited to be joined by Chris Rath, who's an Australian politician. He serves as the opposition whip in the New South Wales Legislative Council, the upper house in the New South Wales um, State Parliament. Um, he's also part of a new generation of younger Australian politicians who have been really highlighting the need for house building. Um, and he spoke last month at the inaugural general meeting of the Simbi Sydney Yimby movement. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thank you for having me. Welcome to London as well. I was wondering if you could give us a general sense of where the housing ha has gone astray, because Australia's had quite significant population growth, um, as well as quite significant increase in, in the cost of housing over the mm. last few decades. And how do you think that kind of compares to the UK? So you're quite right in your introduction that house prices are becoming incredibly unaffordable for young Australians, um, which is a real shame. I think that the political calculus has changed in the sense that up until maybe six months ago, maybe a year ago, it used to be incredibly popular to be a NIMBY uh, and politicians would pander to NIMBYs, often older Australians in local communities. Whereas I think now what's happening increasingly on both sides of politics, left and right, is that it's increasingly popular to become a YIMBY, um, that people can see how difficult it is to enter the housing market instead of just pandering to the older NIMBY cohort, uh, politicians are doing a lot more to try and to appeal to that younger generation. I'm certainly uh, a part of that because people can see how bad things have gotten. And it hasn't happened overnight, as you said, 380% um, over 30 years. So it has been creeping up, but it has been a, um, a you know, led to this terrible situation that we're now, now in, in Sydney and Melbourne in particular. Yeah, I think this is this is quite fascinating. By by UK standards, I think this is overnight. So the UK has had this kind of back and forth for for at mm. least a decade. Um, in terms, if not longer, you can you can go back to the two thousands when there's calls for housing reforms, attempting the, this issue is acknowledged, and then nothing really happens. It seems like things are actually moving much faster in Australia. Maybe we can get into that in a second. Mm. But if we step back a bit, um, I seem to remember there's, there's this classic comment from from Bob Carr was the kind of the, the, the turn of the century premier in New South Wales um, declaring that Sydney was full. Mm. Um, Sydney, the, the capital of New South Wales, was full. And yeah. the sense there was, um, we, we don't want to see the population keep growing. I think over that 2000s period, Melbourne grew faster than Sydney did. Um, and the, the, there was a sense that we don't want to see as much house building. Um, mm. I was wondering if you could kind of explain what, what that what that has meant, I suppose, over the last 20 years and, and what kind of like policy impact that's had. Yeah, Sydney is quite unique in that it has some quite 
strong geographic boundaries. You have the Hawkesbury River to the north, you have the Royal National Park to the south, you've got the Pacific Ocean to the east, and you're sort of cut off by the Blue Mountains in the west. So you can't have the same amount of urban sprawl in Sydney as you would in other cities, which can sort of endlessly go on uh, forever. Think Tokyo, for instance. Um, so there is a lot of concerns about, well, if you are going to increase the population in Sydney, how do you do it? Obviously, you have to go up because you can't go out in the same way. Um, but people are very concerned about, uh, about you know, properties, buildings going up at, at a pace that they think is, is too extreme. That was, um, so it's not a new thing. Bob Carr made those comments, uh, you know, over 20 years ago. But that still resonates a lot with some Australians that, um, that we've got this endless population growth and where are you going to put people? The concern that I have is that immigration in Australia, I don't know if it's the same here, is being used as sort of the only solution by some people to the housing mm. crisis that we have, as if uh, if we only we reduced immigration, then you would solve the housing crisis problem. Every time I post on social media, I get an avalanche of people responding saying, what are you going to do about the fast pace of immigration? The issue is, if you look at in 2020-21, the COVID years, is that we had negative net migration into Australia, but house prices still went up quite substantially, like 20% or something, something like that, which I think proves that it's not just a demand problem. This is also clearly a supply problem as well. So I don't think Sydney is full. Um, I think that we need to build up um, and immigration is only part of the uh, housing um, problem that we have. It's by no means the only the only lever that you can pull. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is a, a very similar debate in the UK context and uh, particular concern in recent uh, months over the very high net migration figures, mm. something like 700,000 people coming to the UK, which proportionally is probably actually similar to what Australia's had, although for, for two decades, yeah. very high levels of migration. But I, I think you're right, again, in the UK context, the migra migration is used as a scapegoat when, mm. even when migration slowed, and like house prices went down meaningfully during COVID. Um, at the same time, there's also that question of, in, in, even more so in the UK, of internal migration. So as people kind of like moving to London mm. um, and that pushing up house prices, and that would happen even if you had no one moving from abroad. You'd have kind of internal migration to cities where people want to live and you have access to jobs and you have access to opportunities. It would be interesting to see some modelling about the impact of migration on house prices. My assumption, sort of my gut feeling, is that increased migration probably has more of an impact on rents than it would on house prices, even though the two are carefully correlated but that usually when you have people coming to Sydney, for instance, as international students or on short-term working visas, they're probably not going to buy if they're only here for six months or mm. a year. They're probably going to rent. So it probably has more of an impact on rents than house prices, but I don't think any substantial amount of modelling has been done on that in Australia, at least. I'm interested in your thoughts on uh, kind of the, the broader impacts of the kind of housing cost issues. Mm. Um, in terms of the, the people's capacity to, I suppose, live near jobs that they might be more productive uh, in doing, the impact that has on people's cost of living. Is it that same kind of debate in, in Australia, that same kind of concern that you're seeing? Yeah, I think so. It's definitely become a hot political issue now more so than in the past because of the cost of living pressures that people are facing. Rents are going up sky high, uh, property prices are going up sky high, but as a 
also you've had very significant increases in interest rates as the Reserve Bank rightly is trying to squeeze out inflation from the economy. Interest rates have gone up and that's put more of a squeeze on people along with uh, grocery prices, electricity yeah, prices, yeah. they're all going up. I think it's around the Western world, it's a, it's a similar thing. Um, so it's made it more of a political issue now than it probably was in the past when you had very low interest rates and not the same cost of living uh, crisis. But we have moved towards a scenario where as a result of that, it's probably a good thing that all of a sudden there's more discussion about housing and about increasing supply, in particular near major transport hubs, which probably didn't get the attention it deserved even a few years ago. And what is driving that, um, I suppose, politically? Is, is there more engagement in the issue? Um, I, I mentioned earlier that uh, the Sydney YIMBY movement is established, mm. and I think that originally uh, was in the US and London YIMBYs existed for quite a yeah. long period of time. But that seems almost entirely kind of new to the Australian debate, the kind of like yeah. the counter lobby for, for house building. It's only about a year old and they're doing a fantastic job. What you'd normally have in Sydney um, in particular is that our councils have a lot of power mm. in terms of rezoning and in terms of approvals of, of developments. Significant developments are done by the state government, but, um, but the councils still have a huge role to play in particular in rezoning. So every time a council wanted to rezone or wanted to approve some sort of development, what you would have is a whole bunch of NIMBYs, often boomers, turn up and they would lobby the councillors at the public meeting and in the lead up to the public meeting when the decision was being made to oppose the development. And all of a sudden you'd have councillors and your local state or federal MP receive 10 emails or phone calls or letters to their office and they would start to get worried because they would think that those that, that small group of people represented the entire community, when in actual fact they probably don't in any way represent the local community. So what Sydney Yimby's done, which is fantastic, is all of a sudden there are two voices now at the public meetings and two uh, different you know, voices being heard by our elected officials, uh, not just the NIMBYs but also the Yimby's as well, so that the MPs and councillors that do want to see more development, they do want to see um, more housing uh, being built, is that all of a sudden they've now got the comfort in coming out saying that they're representing the community, just not the small narrow group that has been lobbying against uh, more housing supply for, for, for a long time. So that has really only happened in the last 12 months. You, you, would, have, you would have had a monopoly of, uh, of concerned locals from the NIMBYs mm. up until about 12 months ago. And it's already paid some significant rewards, I think. Um, there was one down in southern Sydney, Mortdale. Um, they were putting forward a new master plan. Uh, Sydney YIMBY got very involved in, in lobbying on that, as were all the local NIMBYs as well. And the vote did pass and they've opted for greater density. I think that a lot of the local councillors down there and the local MPs probably wouldn't have come out in favour of greater density had it not have been for the comfort that was provided by Sydney Yimby. So in a sense, there's always been probably a set of younger people who don't really care about house building or pro-house building, but they've never been engaged before or enraged to actually show up and turn up at those meetings yeah. at a very local level, as opposed to the NIMBYs who've always been very engaged. And I think the classic problem here, of course, is the, mm. the ultimate beneficiaries of an, a new uh, house in a local area 
aren't there yet. They're not voting yet. They're not. Mm. They're, they're not represented at yeah. the council. While the existing residents who might feel like they're going to lose out because of increased density or pressure on public services or even a, a potential reduction in the value of their house, they they are physically there and they they do tend to vote. Um, quite strongly. Yeah, no millennial is going to call their local MP saying, thank you so much for increasing housing supply in the local area. But you will get the the 10, you know, NIMBY boomers calling saying, please don't do this. It's often misplaced. I mean, Peter Chulip at the Centre for Independent Studies, one of our centre-right free market think tanks, um, actually did some research about how increased density in local communities doesn't actually have the, the disastrous impact um, on amenity and on um, and on the local character and on the house prices in the area, quite like people would think. Um, so I think sometimes the concerns are misplaced. There's probably just this sort of emotional view that they want their local community to stay exactly the same as it was when they were growing up in the mm. 60s, which is just not going to happen. Um, but it's about trying to bring as much of the community with you as you can. You're obviously not going to bring everyone. There seems to be a very big kind of political economy question here as well, particularly, you know, you're uh, from the Liberal Party in Australia, the the centre-right sister party of the Conservative Party over here. I think more or less the Conservative Party have given up on the idea of of housing reform, Mm. at least in a substantial and meaningful way. Um, They've made various efforts at it in the past, but there's been two big backlashes, particularly from, you know, the the, the, uh, NIMBY... NIMBY boomer kind of generation mm. that are very strong Tory voters. But I, I think, in a sense, you're kind of trying to make a counter-political case here in terms of the Liberal Party's or the centre-right's attraction to young people in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. I think like we're already getting about 70% of the boomer vote, but we're only getting about one in five Gen Z and one in four millennials. Mm. My personal view is that there is a whole cohort of aspirational young professionals out there who want to enter the housing market who aren't voting right of centre. They're not voting for the Liberal Party, they're not voting for the Conservative Party um, because we're not giving them any uh, substantial set of policies that they want to vote for. And I think it's easier to get that low-hanging fruit of that young professional class that want to enter the housing market rather than trying to get an even greater super majority of boomers where we've already got their vote. And this isn't just um, my own personal view that I want to win more voters that look and sound like me, but it's also proved to be successful in Canada where you look at the Conservative uh, leader of the opposition there, Pierre Pouliev, who's actually increased drastically the amount of millennials and Gen Z voting for the Conservative Party off the back Mm. of housing policies, greater housing supply in particular. The average Conservative voter in Canada is now younger than the average Trudeau Liberal voter, which is pretty remarkable uh, if you think about that in a UK Conservative Party or Australian Liberal Party context. Um, That just wouldn't be the case uh, here. So he's done a remarkable job. I think that the Liberal Party would be well served in emulating some of his policies because I think it's good politics and good policy. I think in the past I've often thought it's good policy to be pro-housing supply, but we've been worried about the politics of it. I think increasingly it's both good policy and good politics. Yeah, I mean, it is such an extraordinary contrast between the Conservative Party in the UK that according to polls is maybe getting 1%, 2 3% of Gen yeah, Z, which I is some of those. They're which, awful. which for them is politically disastrous. You compare yeah. that to uh, the the opposition, the centre right opposition, um, the Conservatives in 
uh, Canada who were getting something like one third and the, yeah. the, the, the most likely party for people under the age of 35 to vote for. Yeah. Um, and the real kind of swing of a massive electoral change probably even matters slightly more in Australia where there's compulsory voting. So young mm. people do vote. In the UK context, it's often like a lot of policy can be too focused on um, you know, older generations, particularly pensions policy, for example, and triple lock on pensions, uh, which is hugely beneficial to older people who vote and they show up while younger people don't vote. So mm. the, the, the electoral politics is a little bit different. Yeah, I mean, we would not have lost the last federal election or the last New South Wales state election if we were getting one in three of the millennial Gen Z vote. But we only got about one in five Gen Z and one in four millennials. Um, and it's a huge group. It's an increasing proportion of the Australian electorate as well, as the boomer generation uh, die off and as the essentially the Gen Zs all become of voting age, it's an increasing share of the population. And I think that too often we've just sort of ignored younger voters and said, oh, we don't really care about, about them. Or you sort of put forward a policy idea to try and win them back. And then people are a bit too cautious about it. Oh, we don't really want to do that. What about the voters we already have? I think that you might lose a couple of, you know, NIMBY boomers at one end, but you've the, the opportunity to pick up a huge cohort of aspirational young Australians at the other end is incredibly tempting, and that's the way we should be moving in Australia. I also think there's, there's particularly for the Tories in, in the UK, but even in Australian context as well, you almost do actually want to try to densify some of those inner city areas that are not kind of centre-right voting. Mm. Um, in order to make sure that those younger kind of left-wing voting progressives don't move out to, yeah. the, to the places where people do vote to the centre-right. I think this is actually something the Tories have really screwed up in the UK context, which is, well, if people are moving outside of London um, to, to the commuter belt that used to be quite Tory voting, it's, it's not going to be ultimately electorally beneficial um, if you have kind of more voters who are disinclined your way and are angry that they've, they've had to... Um, sacrifice the, the quality of life they wanted and, and living in living in a, a city and have to move further out. Like they're, they're not, it's not ultimately beneficial in the electoral calculus. Yeah, I, I think that the there's there's often a view that young people don't vote for us, therefore we don't want greater density in our local area. Um, this is some of the concerns that Liberal MPs might have, uh, or that people in apartments or renters don't don't vote for us. But on the flip side, I would say, well, they don't vote for us because we're not pu putting forward policies that appeal to them as well. Um, so if you did have a policy mix that they were interested in, uh, like they do in Canada, then you would have people living in apartments, younger people, wanting to vote for, uh, for the Liberal Party. So I do think it's quite misplaced, some of those... Um, some of those concerns. And it is about giving people a choice as well. Not everyone will want to live in a one-bedroom apartment 10 minutes away from the city. Some people want, will want to live further further out of, out of town, especially if they want to raise a family. Um, so it's not imposing that on people, but you do need to give people a, a choice, and we certainly don't have that yet in Australia. Um, let's go to some of the kind of policy approaches here, because there has been some significant mm -hmm. change. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of, before we get into that, you seem to see a lot in Australia, we've seen in the UK as well, which is talk about things like rent controls. Mm. There's a lot of um, talk about first home buyers grants, yeah. uh, letting people tap into their, their pension funds called superannuation funds in Australia to put down deposits. What, what I'm kind of getting at here, there's, there's a whole bunch of policies that are probably demand stimulating or deal with the yeah. symptoms rather than the cause, which is um, lack of house building. 
yeah. and and even on the centre right, there seems to be a lot of attraction to that. Um, particularly, it's probably worth um, differentiating here between kind of the state and federal level. In, in Australia, the state level does have control for things like planning and, mm. and, and house building, while at the federal level, they've kind of got the monetary levers, so they're tempted to try to pull some of those monetary levers. Yeah, correct. And look, it is obviously a demand and a supply issue. Um, I think that people do, as I said before, an immigration focus almost entirely on the on the demand side. We have a very inefficient tax system in Australia in the sense that we tax property um, quite substantially through transactions, through stamp duty, mm. uh, which is one of the worst taxes. Every single tax review commissioned by both sides uh, of, of uh, the political divide has come back saying that the you know, not to be too technical about it, but the deadweight loss involved in stamp duty is incredibly high and it's one of the worst taxes, one of the most inefficient taxes in Australia and should be removed. Indeed, in the UK so, as well. Yeah. yeah, so that's something that should be abolished and you should move towards a, a land tax, which is far more uh, efficient. Um, but you're right, a lot of the policy levers um, are with the state government and the councils more so than the federal government. Even stamp duty is levied at a, at a state level. Where the feds have a role is that they have uh, all of the cash. So the feds have a lot more money, a lot more revenue, uh, revenue raising powers than the state government uh, does. So Labor's view is probably to build more public housing or build properties that you can rent. I think that's wrong. I think that the better way of doing it is to encourage private home ownership, where the feds have a role, I think, is saying to councils that if you meet and beat your housing targets, we will give you a cash incentive. Mm. Um, if you don't meet your housing targets, we'll take money away from you. And this is, again, not my idea. It's it's Pierre Polyev's uh, idea. Um, and I think that that's one role that they could play. The state government could do a similar thing uh, with councils, incentivising them through the, the carrot and the stick, so you still give local communities their planning powers. You still give them the ability to determine what each development looks like and where it goes because we do believe in subsidiarity. You don't want to take everything away from local communities, but you should incentivise them through the revenue powers of the state and federal government to meet and beat their housing targets. So the, the New South Wales government has, uh, in the last recent weeks, in fact, even announced some mm. um, initial reforms to house building. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering what, what, you, what they involve and what you make of them. Yeah, so it's basically an understanding that if um, in, in Sydney, um, you've got a whole lot of uh, areas that are well serviced by public transport, in particular train lines, both heavy rail and our metro, um, and also light rail as well. And then other areas of Sydney are almost black spots. They don't really have a huge amount of public transport services. Mm. What Labor's saying, which is a good idea, is that if you live close to the city, if you live near major public transport hubs, then there should be greater density. Um, what is called R3 or R4 um, in Australia, R3 being sort of medium rise and R4 being high rise. Um, so R3, think sort of three or four storey um, apartment blocks. Gentle density. What, sorry? We, we might call it gentle density. Gen gentle density. Yeah. And look, Australia, unlike if you walk around just here in, in London, you have a, a lot of medium density. In Sydney, we don't. In Sydney, there's a lot of high rise or detached single storey homes. Mm. And you don't have that middle, what we call the missing middle. You don't have a lot of townhouses. You don't have a lot of three or four storey apartment blocks. Um, 
So Labor's idea, and, and it's certainly a good one, but we're still waiting for a lot of the detail on it, is that they've identified a series of transport hubs, in particular train stations, that should have greater density uh, uh, near them. The difficulty is um, what you do with heritage, um, which they haven't thought through yet, um, and it's a sort of vexed issue because whilst you want greater density, what do you do with um, some of the heritage listed homes close to the train station? It's quite absurd. You might live 15 minutes away from the city um, and you get off the train station, a major train station, and across the road you have um, a string of uh, heritage listed Federation style homes and they're all protected. But the question is, should they be protected? How many um, heritage listings should we have? And what, what essentially do you, do you do with them? I think that there's some low hanging fruit. You should, certainly shouldn't heritage list 1970s red brick single story <laughs> homes, but there's also um, some homes that are incredibly beautiful and of historic value that need to be uh, preserved as well. But there's a question of how much heritage should we have? Yeah, I mean, there's 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 an intrinsic intrinsic trade off here, and it also comes up a lot in the UK context, where uh, certainly I think almost everything that is considered heritage in Australia would not be heritage in the UK. No, that's true. Which is yeah. which is a great irony of, of, of almost course. nothing post World War Two is heritage, uh, yes. in my opinion. But we certainly heritage list stuff in that era. Well, I mean, in fact, <laughs> they do sometimes here as well, and it, it'll be a bit yeah. brutalist and, and grotesque, and you'll, you'll be thinking, why is there yeah. building protection for this? But um, it does seem like, to some extent, you you have to be willing to sacrifice like, some of the, the heritage listings or some things that some people might consider to be heritage in order to be able to, you know, grow and innovate and change. Like, it, it, it heritage has to grow with a city as well. So you want to, yeah. there's a balance to be struck. But you can protect the facade. So you can build up, you know, above and, and around a certain heritage building as well. It's not to say that you need to demolish the entire thing. Yeah. Um, and you can also keep to the same style, yes, like, whilst and, and basically replicate the style, but add density, add add, add um, additional stories, which yeah. is which and is. I think that's important for bringing the community with you. Often, if you listen to the concerns from from some of the NIMBYs, it's their concern is that the buildings that are coming in are ugly, and some of them are ugly. Like we shouldn't um, we we shouldn't impose that on local communities. If you can build to a standard that people. Um, are happy with in some often more traditional designs, um, then I think you will bring a lot of the community along with you, as well as having an appropriate amount of green space and parks and things like that that the community can enjoy as well. Of course, there will be some that just want it to look exactly the way it did in the 50s or 60s. You're never going to win those people over, but you will be able to win over the majority if you build in a way that isn't alien to its environment. I'm interested in this, this point as well in terms of this, this tension, and you already referred to it previously in terms of how you bring the local community, local councils along with mm -hmm. house building, because there's a bit of a temptation on the NIMBY side of things to say, you know, screw the, screw the NIMBYs, mm -hmm. let's just build over them, let's force councils to approve things. Yeah. Um, that's been tried many times in the UK context. It always tends to fail politically mm -hmm. because uh, there's just enough of a backlash against trying yeah. to overwrite local preferences, um, particularly with housing targets. Uh, I don't mm -hmm. know how it works in New South Wales, but in the UK context, there's there's been these housing targets that are meant to bite on local councils, otherwise that get overwritten. They've, in fact, the government recently in the UK got rid of the binding housing targets, they're non-binding housing targets. I noticed the Victorian government in Australia has a goal now for 80,000 new homes mm -hmm. per year as a target, and they're doing some similar reforms that we talked about around transport hubs and up zoning and whatnot. 
Has there been uh, much of backlash to what's been announced so far? Um, and 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 how? If so, what's the solution to deal with that? Yeah, definitely, there has been some backlash already. We've had housing targets now for some time, but they've been essentially non-binding, in in the sense that there's no punishment if you don't meet them, and no incentive if you do meet them. And some councils have been great; they have um, gone over and above their housing target, but they don't get any recognition or additional funds uh, for 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 doing that. Um, and some just haven't anywhere near met, uh, met, met their targets. There has been backlash already from um, some communities, but there's a, there's a severe lack of detail at the moment from Labor's plan in terms of where the development's going to go and what it's, what it's going to look like. Um, so we are waiting for that detail, but people are worried. Some people are worried, local councils, some lo- in the local community are worried about what the greater density will mean and what it looks like and, and, and where it goes. Um, but we're just waiting for that, for, for that detail. I think a lot of it is the fear of the unknown. You can bring these communities uh, with you. Um, I think if, if they feel like they're having some input, one thing I've never really understood in Australia, I don't know if it's the case here in, in the UK as well, is that the developer will put together the plan um, of what the building looks like, um, all of the designs, and then right at the end, the council um, or some planning panel needs to decide whether it goes ahead or not. And the local community can decide um, whether they want to object. And if there's a, a lot of objections, it's more likely that it will get uh, rejected. I think it should be done more at the start of the process. So consult with the community at the beginning hmm. what the development should look like um, rather than right at the end when the developer's already gone through six, 12 months of work, they've already put together all of the plans, they've already got um, approvals for, for, for parts of it, and then right at the end it gets objected to because the developer needs certainty, but the community also wants greater consultation. So I think we're doing it wrong in, in that regard. There should be more community consultation earlier on. Not community consultation in saying you can reject greater density in your area, community consultation in what do you want it to look like, where do you think it should go, um, what, what should be amenities. the roads are built oh, yeah, around of it. Course. How do yeah. you deal with the traffic issues that if there are any? Yeah. Should there be requirements for underground parking, like things like that? Yeah, rather than just a, a blanket veto, yeah. which too often happens. Well, Chris Rath, a member of the New South Wales Legislative Council, thank you so much for joining the IA podcast. It's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you um, for having me. If, if you are enjoying this podcast, please do subscribe on your chosen podcast provider. If you'd like to learn more about the IEA and uh, have a look at our research, including many, many decades of uh, investigations into housing and planning policy, do just visit iea.org.uk.